Amen. Fine. Singing tonight. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and we'll open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. Of course, we're just getting started in the book of Ephesians. And um, I sit at home writing these sermons. On Wednesdays, I, I, I'm at home working on the Ephesians series. And you'll pardon me if in these next uh, four or five sermons or a few afterwards that I become very passionate about what I'm preaching because uh, I believe these are some of the most important truths that we find in the Word of God, something that we need to know very well. As I said uh, last week, many commentators, when they come to the book of Ephesians, they approach it with, uh, uh, with trepidation because really, folks, we are on holy ground when we talk about some of the doctrines that we find in this book. What we'll read in the next uh, few weeks and study in the next few weeks has been some of the uh, most debated topics uh, for centuries among Christians. And the lack of understanding of the things that we're going to talk about, especially in the next few weeks, will affect your entire interpretation of the Bible. Now, this shows us uh, what Paul is teaching us in this first chapter is that the concentration is not on man and what God has done for man, but it's the revelation of God's glory and how God best promotes His glory. And the difference here, really, is the difference between man-centered theology and God-centered theology. And by definition, the word theology means uh, the study of God, and so that tells us that uh, theology, or what we teach and we believe, ought to begin with God, and it ought to end with God. And that's what Paul does in this first chapter. All blessings flow from the triune God. And so, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in a very intricate way in our salvation. But we need to remember this that the salvation of man is not the chief derivative of God's work. Now, it's important, but it's not the chief derivative. The chief derivative of what God has done is to promote His own glory. And whatever does not promote the glory of God is not in the plan and the purpose of God. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of most evangelical Christians today. And even among fundamentalists, it is a fundamental misunderstanding. And that might seem like a redundancy, but it's really not, because most fundamentalists leave out this one major fundamental, and that is the sovereignty of God in salvation and how God's sovereignty over overshadows all things that he does with man, the creation of man, the salvation of man, all things are according to the sovereignty of God, and that works over everything. And to miss this truth in the book of Ephesians is to completely misunderstand the point of what Paul is talking about. Now, this evening, I want to speak on the blessings of the Father. And God the Father, of course, is where we must begin when we learn, want to learn about the hows, the whys, and the what-fors of God's creation. It must begin with God the Father. So let's stand in, in reverence for the reading of God's Word, and we'll look at chapter three, or chapter 1, rather, beginning in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted 
in the Beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our people through this message. Help us to learn the truth that you have for us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins verse number 3 of this chapter with the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed comes from the Greek word eulogio, and that's the same word from which you get eulogy. And what Paul is doing here in the beginning of this verse is it's to give us a eulogy. It's a statement of praise and commendation. It's a statement about the real goodness of God. And that's an appropriate way for Paul to start this out because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, there is none good but one, and that is God. And of course, God is the only one who is good, and goodness is a part of God's nature. Now, man is not inherently good. There is no goodness in man. I know lots of times uh, people will talk about the goodness of men and people will discuss about how they have faith in the goodness of men. But the Bible teaches us that there's really only one who is good and that's God himself. I told you some time ago about uh, I was up at the Chinese restaurant up the street here a few months ago when I was eating. And at the end of my meal, I took out my fortune cookie and I opened up the fortune cookie and it said, you believe in the goodness of man. And I thought, do you have the wrong person? Because I do not believe in the goodness of man. I believe in the goodness of God. I don't believe that man has any good in him. And the only way that we can have any goodness is if God externally imparts that to us. We might be partakers of some of the goodness of God, but there is no inherent goodness in men. So Paul starts out here in this chapter with a eulogy. He, he gives a blessing on God. And because God is good, Paul turns this equation around in the next part of the verse, and he says, who hath blessed us? And so tonight, our first consideration is the one who blesses. And the one who blesses us is God. The one who deserves all the blessings has such a beneficial and such a gracious and such a merciful character that God has decided to bless us. You know, the remarkable thing about uh, the nature of God uh, and the desire that God would have to bless us is because of what creatures we are. And it's nearly staggering to think that God would want to bless us and that God cares about us and that there's any goodness that God would want to give us. If you look at books or read books about the attributes of God, you'll always find uh, most of them will, will make a statement like this, and that is that God is supremely happy in himself. That means that there is nothing outside of God that could actually make God any happier than he already is. God's supremely happy in himself. And so there's nothing that God has made in creation that could actually add to his happiness. Not man, not anything that God has created can really add to God's happiness. Now, it's true that we do things sometimes that are, that are pleasing or displeasing to God, and God may make us aware of that, but there's nothing that we can do that can actually enhance or detract from God's ability to be happy. And so he's supremely happy in himself. Well, if there is nothing that can actually add to God's happiness, then why does God fool with us? Why does God even mess with us? Why did he create man? What's the purpose in that if there's nothing that God can do that can actually add to his happiness? Well, that's a mystery that we will never fully understand. We will never come to uh, an understanding of why God would do such a thing. But we do know at least one thing. One thing that we do know is that the gracious and good character of God has 
allowed him to share his goodness and his happiness with us. James wrote in James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And every good gift means every blessing. It means uh, every uh, gracious thing that could come down to us comes down to us from God the Father. All goodness that we receive comes from the Father. Now let's notice here that Paul says, Who hath blessed us? And the us there is a very important part of this word, of this verse. And it's important because believers, first believers, are the people of the blessing. He hath blessed us. Now, who does Paul write this to? Well, verse number one says, the saints that are at Ephesus. Last week I talked about saints. And who are the saints? Everyone who's a believer. Everyone who's trusted Christ is a saint. Everyone who's been born of the Holy Spirit of God is a saint. And so the us here in verse number 3 is the, are the saints that he talks about in verse number 1. Well, we know, of course, that there is a sense in which God blesses all people. In fact, there's not a person who's ever lived who has not derived uh, his life and, the, and his, uh, his very ability to breathe and do all things apart from the blessing of God. I mean, the very fact that you are alive, that your body functions, uh, that you can breathe, that you live, that you're able to work, all of those things are a testament to the goodness of God. But every person who is alive today must also understand that when they were in rebellion against God and when they walked against the will of God, that the blessings that God gave was not because of you. God didn't, doesn't give blessings uh, just for men in general. Now, the Scripture uh, tells us that God makes the sun to rise on the, on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But we also must be aware that God would never, God would never cause the sun to shine without the good, and He would never cause, he would never cause uh, the rain to come on the just or the unjust, without the just. And what I mean by all this is that the reason that God blesses this world today is because of those that He has chosen before the foundation of the world. God's blessings flow out over all of the world, not because of who people are in general, but because of the people that God has chosen out for Himself. Now, if God had not done that, if there weren't people uh, like Christians in this building tonight, people who trust Christ then there would be no reason for God to bless this world, and in fact, this world would not exist. It'd already be out of existence if it weren't for the people of God. So Paul makes it very clear here. He's not talking about common blessings. Uh, He's not talking about common grace. He's not speaking about blessings that come down to all people. He's speaking about a special people, a peculiar people, a called-out people, and these are the ones who God blesses, and they have a peculiar relationship with the Lord that does not exist for anyone who is an unbeliever. Well, how do I know this? How do I know that this is the way it is? Well, because next we see, the heavens are the place of the blessing. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. What are spiritual blessings? Well, Paul is not necessarily uh, speaking here about the kind of blessings, but he's speaking about the source of the blessings. God has blessed us spiritually, that's certainly true, but that's not the main intent of his statement here. The main intent is to tell us where these blessings come from. And just as uh, James said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And so Paul reiterates that statement by describing where the blessings come from, and he says, that's heaven. 
Where do we as believers go when we end this life? Where are we going to spend eternity? We'll spend it in heaven. Heaven's not the home of unbelievers because God's told us that the, those who work abominations, those who tell lies, those who are adulterers and murderers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we know that since the source of the blessings is heavenly, then the people of the blessing must be those who believe. They must be people who have been made righteous. And that's in perfect keeping with what Paul wrote in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, when he said in verses 22 and 23, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels." to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And so those are the people of the blessing, the just men made perfect. These are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, while I'm on this point, I want you to further notice that Ephesians says that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. And so that means that God has not withheld anything. God holds nothing back from us. And we notice here that these words are in the past tense. tense, Who hath blessed us? Or we could say, who has already blessed us? You see, even though that you may live down here, you're already blessed. And that's because you're a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now let's talk about that next for just a minute. And that is we are citizens of heaven. And if you need further proof uh, of all of this, we have scripture that shows us that we are citizens, citizens of heaven. Are we right now citizens of heaven? Well, let me show you just a couple of scriptures that prove that we are. In Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13... <clears throat> The scriptures uh, recount the faith of the patriarchs. And the writer comes down to verse number 13. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse number 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, do you see the word strangers and pilgrims? Strangers means that they were foreigners. Pilgrims mean that they were just passing through. And so they aren't citizens of this earth. They're just passing through this earth on their way to another country. Well, this reference in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse number 13, comes from a story in the Old Testament where Abraham purchased a burying place for his wife, Sarah. The Bible tells us that uh, Abraham went to the land of Canaan, and among the sons of Heth who lived in Canaan, he bought a cave in Machpelah, and that's where he buried his wife Sarah. Now, the amazing thing about this is that even though this was the place that God had promised Abraham, that Canaan was the land of promise, that God had given it to him, yet Abraham did not even call Canaan his home. Because in this story, he speaks to the sons of Heth, and he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. And so Abraham did not even count Canaan as his home. And the reason that he didn't was because he believed he had a heavenly home. He was going someplace else. He was a citizen of another country. Then there's another scripture that shows us that we are citizens of heaven. And this is a little bit more direct. And not coincidentally, it was also written by Paul. Philippians uh, 3.20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you already know that the word conversation there actually means citizenship. And so, 
we read about spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And we know that Paul primarily must be talking about the source of the blessings, and those blessings can only be realized by those who are the saints of God. So if you are looking for even more proof of your eternal salvation, look right here. And that is that you are already a citizen of heaven. Then the next thing that we would notice about this is that the blessings are already given. Now again, these words are in the past tense. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Now you need to understand what he's saying here very clearly. Because you don't need to pray for things that God has already given. Now, you may need to pray for the realization of them, and you may not understand that God has already given. Maybe sometimes you don't understand it, but you don't need to pray for things that God has already given. For instance, Christians will pray for love, but God's already given you His love. As a matter of fact, if you're a child of His, you can't get any more of the love of God. You have all the love that God has. He says that His love is shed abroad in our hearts. Christians will pray for peace. But Jesus said, my peace I give you. And so he's already given us perfect peace. We pray for joy. But Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that your joy might remain and that your joy might be full. We pray for strength. And yet the Bible already says, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. So if you are a believer in Christ, you already have the blessings. You have all spiritual blessings. If you're a believer, you've got it all. Now, the next phrase we find, uh, uh, next phrase in in this uh, gives us the next area of discussion. And it shows us here that these spiritual blessings are in Christ. And so, secondly, we want to look at the agent of the blessing. And the agent is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us that God is a spirit. And as a spirit, God cannot communicate with us what is in his mind in a way that we can understand. In our study of the Gospel of John, the very first sermon that I preached about this, and, and maybe a subsequent sermon as well, I, I did a, spent a great deal of time talking about Jesus as the Word. That Jesus is the expression of God. That Jesus is the concept in the mind of God that actually became a physical reality. Remember when we had the tent set up over here? And we talked about how Jesus pitched His tent among us, how He tabernacled with us. And that was showing us this visible manifestation of God. And so the way that God's blessings come to us is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the agent of our blessing. Well, why does he do this and how does he do it? Well, let's look first. He does it because of our position. One of the greatest truths that we have in the Bible is the teaching about our safety and security in Christ. I'm sorry that... Uh, Most of the Christian world doesn't really understand this. Those who call themselves Christians, they don't really understand. And really, uh, the most fundamental of all reasons why we are secure is found in verse number 4. And that's because God has chosen us. And if there's nothing else that that could tell us that we are secure, that would, because God has chosen us from the foundation of the world. But we are secure in our salvation because of our position. And we are blessed because of our position. Now listen to what Paul says right in the next chapter, right next door in chapter 2. Verse number 6, And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so our position and our possession of heaven are so secure for us as believers that Paul even puts that verse in the past tense. 
We have already been raised up, and we have already been made to sit in heavenly places. Now, do you see uh, what this means if, if you could actually lose your salvation? This would be like God uh, just pulling you out of your mansion in heaven. I mean, this would be like God uh, taking you out of your golden lazy boy recliner while you're watching the heavenly Super Bowl and sending you back to the grave where you are to wait for the judgment that's coming. But God's never going to do that. We are safe and secure in Jesus because of our position, because of the place we are seated. We are seated in heavenly places and we are in Him. Well, how else do the blessings flow? Well, they also flow because of His power. You know, one of the phrases that I, that I really love in the Bible, one of my favorite ones, it's, it's the phrase that says, He is able. He is able to subdue. Four times in the New Testament we find the phrase, He is able. He is able to subdue. He is able to succor. He is able to keep. He is able also to save. Christ is able. And when we were unable... When we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. When we are not able, He is able. And the blessings all flow to us because Christ is able, and He will never fail in any of those abilities. Everything that God has promised us, you can write this down, you can be sure of it, you will receive all these blessings because God is able. Christ is able to supply them. And so how do we get those? They come down through the, from the Father of lights, through the matchless abilities of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me quote to you one commentator on this. He said, Christ's riches are our riches. His resources, our resources. His righteousness is our righteousness. And His power is our power. His position is our position. Where He is, we are. His privilege is our privilege. What He is, we are. His possession is our possession. What He has, we have. His practice is our practice. What He does, we do. We are those things and have those things and do those things by the grace of God, which never fails to work His will in those who trust Him. Now, friends, we receive all of our blessings through the agent, through the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. There's a song that says, Without Him, how lost I would be. And how true that is. It all comes through Jesus. Now, I want to finish up the lesson tonight with this third thought. And I don't have time to develop this fully this evening. This deserves a whole lot more time than we can give it now. So I'm actually going to devote two or three more sermons to this next part. But let's talk about, thirdly, the element of the blessing. And the element of the blessing is election. Now, there's that dreaded word, election. And some people cringe when they hear this word. I mean, they just wish that this word was not in the Bible. And so they will dance around it. They'll try to explain it away. They'll try to defang it. They'll put it in a cage somewhere where it get far away from them, where it can never, never, never uh, affect their preconceived notions and their, and their uh, conceptions of what God is. People don't like election, and the reason they don't like it because it puts God completely in control. And that just furthers my opening comments that I made tonight. All things center on God and not on man. And that's why election is so important. Now, I said I'll briefly touch on it tonight, but in verses 4 through 6, we have this element explained. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of 
of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I want you to notice first tonight, God's choice in election. Now, you wouldn't believe some of the uh, mental gymnastics that are played with verse number 4 to get around just a very clear statement of Paul. Now, some who, quite frankly, are dishonest in their interpretation will say that the phrase here, that we should be holy and without blame, is simply all that we are elected to. That is, that once we are saved, we will become holy and without blame. And that's all that this means. And, of course, that would establish that uh, election does not concern the salvation of the person, but only the sanctification of the person. And that's really one of the popular approaches of Baptist fundamentalists. They'll say, this does not refer to salvation. It's talking about sanctification. But I think that we can easily disprove that, and we will over the next weeks. But it's also easily disproved by what follows in verse number 5 in the concept of adoption. I don't have time to go into adoption tonight, but let me, let me say this. Aside from adoption, there is no way that you can get to sanctification without going through justification. And if a person is elected to sanctification, he must also be elected to justification. And if he is elected to justification, you can't get to justification without regeneration. You have to go through it all because no one is justified and sanctified without being regenerated. And so if you have regeneration, justification, and sanctification, what do you have? You have salvation, don't you? And so you're elected to salvation. Now, it's much, much easier to believe what Paul very clearly teaches than to go through all this brain power and mental exercise to try to disprove what he so so, uh, clearly says. And they call us pseudo-intellectuals. We are chosen to salvation. Now, in just a couple of weeks, I'm going to speak specifically about the phrase holy and without blame regarding sanctification. Well, then there are attempts to insert a different kind of election than the one that this verse plainly teaches. And the Bible does teach that there are three kinds of election. I'm not going to deal too much with the first two because those aren't the ones that are spoken about in this verse, but I'm going to talk about all three of them for just a moment. First, there is theocratic election. There's theocratic election, and what that means is the selection of Israel. Israel is the chosen nation of God. But theocratic election cannot be the subject here because theocratic election has nothing at all to do with salvation. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. In other words, physical descent from Abraham does not guarantee anyone to be saved. It doesn't guarantee salvation. But some would like to wrap up all of election into theocratic election. But that can't be the subject here because Paul is not writing to Israel. He's writing to Gentiles. And he's speaking of spiritual blessings that he says that we have. He says, according as he hath chosen us. And so these are Jews and Gentiles. These are the saints that we find in verse number 1. So Paul cannot be talking about theocratic election here. The second election is vocational election. And for instance, that's when God chose the tribe of Levi to be the priest. And that does not guarantee uh, salvation either. I mean, the priests of Israel, especially during the divided kingdom age, were some of the wickedest idolaters that you could find anywhere. Then the Bible also tells us that uh, Jesus chose 12 disciples. 
and one of them was a devil. And so vocational election may or may not include salvation. In vocational election, God also chooses pastors. He chooses deacons. He chooses missionaries and other works in the church. But that's not the intent of this passage. And all that you need to do to prove that is just carry it on through, read the next chapter, and you'll very clearly come to the conclusion that Paul must be talking about salvation. And so the third type of election is salvational election, or if you prefer, we can say salvific election. And that's what Paul is speaking about in these verses. And folks, this is the one that rocks the boat of the fundamentalist and the modernists as well. They do not like this. But I will tell you this, that salvation, salvational election is necessary because without it, there would not be a single person in the world who would ever be saved. Every person would go to hell if there was not salvational election. And why is that? Well, it's because that we are sinners and we are incapable of making any move towards God ourselves. We cannot come to God on our own. There has to be divine influence. And so the moment that God gives one person saving grace, and he doesn't give it to another person, that is proof positive of election. You see, if men could believe without the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't be true. But there's nothing clearer taught in the Bible than man must be drawn by God in salvation. This is what Jesus said in John 6, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And he repeated in verse 65, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Do all men come to Christ? Does every person come to Christ? Well, if they do, why do we preach? And if they do, why do we pray for them? Why do we exhort them, encourage them to come? Why do we go out and visit them? If all men come to Christ, that wouldn't be necessary. But the facts are, all men do not naturally come to Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John five forty: And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. And so they won't come. And so God has to make them come. How does God do that? He does it by changing their natural will so they want to come, so they will come. And if God has not changed all men to believe, if he hasn't drawn all men to believe and yet some are saved, then he's, then he's changed the will of only some men. Wouldn't that be true? And if he has changed the will of some men, thus you have election. That's what this is all about. So all of these verses teach unequivocally that there is an election of God. Now really, why would we even want to argue it? Paul said it here just matter-of-factly in Ephesians, and he states it just as equally as clearly in the book of Romans. But you know something? That's not even the clincher. Some think that election is just something that Paul talked about, that it's just a Pauline doctrine. But any person who would sit down and read the book of John thoroughly and without bias, you would find that election is a major part of Jesus' teaching. He teaches it in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 17, and scattered around in other places throughout the book of John. Now others will say, Pastor, you talk too much about this. I mean, it's really not all that important. What difference does it make? Well, if Jesus taught it, and Paul taught it, and Peter taught it, and the Old Testament teaches it, you had better believe that this is an important subject. This is important doctrine. And the difference here, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a difference about whether you are absolutely sure of your salvation and whether you have provable grounds for your assurance. The difference is, how are you saved? By you 
with God's help or by God alone without anybody's help. The difference is whether you really have something to boast about or whether you have nothing at all to boast about. The difference is, are you really totally depraved or are you just partially depraved? The difference really is whether you need to be saved or whether you don't need to be saved. Logically, these are the conclusions that you come to. This is why it's so important for us. This is an important doctrine. And so we're going to spend some more time talking about it because it is important. Then Paul said, or Paul said he chose us, but then next comes God's timing in election. The timing. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Now think about that for just a moment. Before anything was ever created, or as Paul states it in the book of Romans, before anyone had ever done any good or evil, God chose. The world was planned with this particular choice of God in mind. You see, here's something that we really need to grasp, and that is that God lives in the eternal present. Eternity past and eternity future all meld into the presence with, present with God. There is no such thing as past and future with God. He's always in the present. So to us as humans, a choice in eternity past or even one second before a decision is made is still a choice, isn't it? It's still the choice of God. What I'm saying is whether he made it a million years ago or whether he made it one second before you come to know Christ, that's still God's choice. Wouldn't that be true? Well, the matter of the fact here is that God tells us, Paul tells us, when the choice was made, because it was not made one second before you believe. It was made in eternity past, before the creation of the world. And so that means before Adam was created. It means before Christ ever made a sacrifice. And of course it means before you were actually born, God chose us. Well, why did God choose us before you and I were born? Why did he do that? Because it makes a great deal of difference, the timing of it. The timing of the choice makes it abundantly clear to us that it could not have been based in any way, shape, or form on anything that we have done. Now, if the God's choice had been made one second before we were born, then God could have looked at our lives and he could have said, well, that looks like a pretty good fella. I think that I might just choose him. But God didn't do that. The choice was made in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before we'd done anything at all. And so it can't be based upon anything that we have done. And so, therefore, the election or the choosing of God must be unconditional. And what I mean by that is not conditioned on anything that is in man. But, do you know this, folks? That particular point is very vehemently denied by most fundamentalists. Now, there's a man by the name of John Phillips who is the guru of fundamental preachers. If you ever pick up one of his commentaries, he says some good things, and I quote some things from him at times. But he, uh, he says, what he actually does, he takes the, the old Pelagian heresy of about 1,700 years ago and the Arminian heresy of about 400 years ago, and he states that God chose us because he saw that we would choose him. Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. Jesus said in John 15, verse 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And so an idea that God would choose us because he saw that we would choose him, that runs counter to everything the Bible teaches us. God chose us because we could not choose him. And that brings us right back to John 6.44, John 6.65, and John 5.40 that we talked about just a moment ago. 
And so the choice of, of us as believers before the foundation of the world cannot be based in our choice. It is God's choice alone. Just as it says here in our text verses in verse number 5, according to the good pleasure of His will. Well, I'm going to have a lot more to say about election in, in the next two lessons and throughout the study. We'll talk about it some more. But let me somewhat sum up what I want to say tonight with just this last thought. God chose me because he knew I would never choose him. If I'm going to be saved, it had better be because God chose me because I would never choose him. You know why? Because I'm a filthy, rotten, dirty sinner. I would never choose God unless he first chose me. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote on this. Uh, And by the way, those of you, whether you're fans of Spurgeon, I don't know or not, I I like Spurgeon very much. And um, Spurgeon believed everything that I've told you tonight. But he had a great quote on this. He surveyed his life, and he looked at what he was on the inside, and here's what he said. I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never choose me afterward. You know, what, what is the most presumptuous thing for a person to ever think? really, is that God chose me because he saw that I would choose him. You know what that says? It says, I'm not really that bad after all. I was a pretty good guy, and God saw that I was going to do some pretty good things, and so he chose me. I don't care if you're a fundamental Baptist or what you are. That is a lie. That's not true. You could not choose God. And if, if God had not chosen us, every last one of us would die and go to hell. It's the choice of God the Father, and Paul makes this very, very clear in these next verses that we're going to study. So there's a difference here. Do you believe that you have something to do with your salvation, or is it God alone? And what you believe about this really does determine your theology. Remember, theology, by definition, is the study of God. And to do, or to deny what Paul says right here, is to make your theology man-centered rather than God-centered. That's not what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the blessings that you give. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to come to a good understanding of these things, that we would see where we stand and where you stand, and we know, Lord, that all things promote your glory. Our teaching, our preaching, and all that we do is for one thing, to promote the glory of God. Never let it be said, Lord, that we want to exalt ourselves and think about who we are or what we have done. But only by your grace and your mercy have you saved us. So all glory does belong to you. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.